trip down memory lane for me. The, the title of this message is Christmas, A Tale of Two Stories. And uh, the first part of this, this message is about memory lane for me, I, I, where I grew up and how Christmas looked for me, and with, a, with an idea towards a testimony of showing that if someone can survive that, the Lord can certainly bring them out of that into a right understanding of who God is and and, uh, and it's a it's a hard thing to I'm not trying to break out of it just trying to understand it uh, in its proper light and then the second part of that is really a priority job one um, as we uh, we separate this so Christmas is a special time of year we know that I mean when you um, run into people sometimes they seem to be a little more friendly than they normally would in August you know rainy season but they just seem to be a little more kind and Generous. Not that they change their driving habits or anything like that. That's so. That's a whole different realm. But but it just seems that it's an excuse to call somebody on the phone you haven't talked to all year and wish them a happy holidays and that sort of stuff. And and um, one of the things I like about it, I think, and dislike about it, I'm not really sure. Earlier in this week, I was that I dislike it, but there's something about fresh snow and lots of it covering the trees and the quietness that it brings and the covering over of the the muddy stuff that's underneath and it's just and a few times I was out here real early in the morning and we shut the motor off in the vehicle and step out and I could hear myself crunching and I stopped and I just listened to nothing it was nice it was it was peaceful that's just this time of the year seems to bring that in the middle of the chaos that quietness there and so it's a special time and the the the, the colorful lights that light up the neighborhoods and I'm Sandy and I are planning trying to get a few evenings to go out and just drive through neighborhoods and see the creativity and all the festive lights and the, the sparkling things and things that distract you. Ooh, look, something shiny. And um, the, the, the Christmas tree in front of the window when you drive by and you see the Christmas trees, you can almost anticipate that it's full of presents underneath and, and all that kind of joy that comes on. And, the, and then there's the lots of shopping for traffic, the traffic for shopping. And if you ever go down Diamond Boulevard this time of the year between Costco and Fred Meyers and Walmarts, and it's hard to get anywhere on Diamond Boulevard. That's part of the part of the whole thing, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. And then there's that infamous rush to get the Christmas cards out and the Christmas letter out. And if you're sending a package somewhere, hurry up and get it to the post office so it makes it just before Christmas rolls around. And uh, cookies become legal. You know, anybody who makes cookies, you're allowed to eat them. You know, that's, that's kind of a fun thing. It makes Christmas special. Eggnog, I think it should be illegal. But a lot of people like eggnog, even though I don't particularly uh, care for eggnog. But it's there. It's around. And here's one that, that I kind of thought about. is um, There's a lot of gambling that goes on at Christmas time. Yeah, that was my reaction, Chris. It was just like, think about it. There's a lot of gambling. You want to get Aunt Edna something for Christmas. And you look at it, and you see the price, and you go, boy, if I can just wait a couple more days, there's a chance that it's going to be 25% off. I just know that. So the gamble is, do I get it now and lose that 25%, or do I, do I risk it being out of stock, and nobody gets it for 25% off? So there's that. So there's that delicate balance of, of gambling. And then there's the big one is... I want to get some new lights and some new Christmas, some bulbs for the tree and that sort of stuff. And, but boy, I'm not going to pay full retail because I know the day after Christmas, it's 90% off. 
So now, I just, I guess I'm just not going to have it. And the next year, it repeats itself. For some reason, Christmas is such a special time. You know, and then there's that, although I had little to no, I had zero control over this one, but the quest for the best place to go for Christmas dinner. I had zero say. My mom had all the say. My grandmom had all the say. Grandma said, you'll be here, and here's when you'll be, and this is where you're sitting, and this is what we're having. Merry Christmas. You know, and, and that's the way it worked. I, I grew up in a traditional Italian Catholic family. Sometimes I have to remind myself not everybody has that kind of a background. And um, for those of you who don't, it's intense. It really is intense. There's amazing uh, hierarchy and things the way I see some of the heads that are familiar with that. But I had two grandmas, Grandma Jingola. I'm, I want to try to go through this. I can barely understand it. So... Don't worry if you miss it. It won't be a test. But I have two grandmas, Grandma Jingola on my mom's side and Grandma Burkett on my dad's side. Real simple, pretty common. I had two great-grandmothers, Grandma Jingola, which is Grandma Jingola's grandma, mother, and then Grandma Miglarino, which is my grandmother's mother. And they had, in order to keep these all, because they were always at every event, in order to keep them all separate, we had, we had grandma. And if you said grandma at the dining room table, there would be three heads that would turn. So we had to have a little, um, some names for them. There was, was grandma, and that was grandma, my mom's mom. Then there was grandma Rose, which was her mom. And then there was grandma Miglarino, which is grandma Mig, from, the, from, the, uh, from my mom's side of the family. Was one of the best things that happened was when you'd come to their house, and my grandfather built this house, and he built the basement. It's, it's kind of a below or above ground, but dirt was piled up to make it look like it's one-story house. But this full basement, huge, could accommodate um, dinner for 50 people easily. So it was dinner every week at my grandma's house. It wasn't just Christmas and Thanksgiving. It was every week. You rarely did you miss a week, which is okay. But um, the, um, the, the order of events would be when you got there, um, Grandpa, Grandpa Pete he would be waiting for you at the door. And he was about 4 foot 10 by 4 foot 10 by 4 foot 10. And you couldn't hug him. You couldn't hang on and hug. You just had to kind of bounce off of him like one of those balls you'd bounce around in. But, but um, he would always be at the door with a silver dollar in his hand. And as you came up and he hugged you, he would give you the silver dollar. Every time we went to dinner, he would hug you. And, and he didn't have to bribe us to hug him. He was a fun guy. And he'd give us a silver dollar. And I was thinking back on that. It was like having a part-time job at that time in the world. You know, get $4 a month. That's, that's pretty good wages for an 8-year-old kid. But there were also the, the line of grandmas that... Uh, after you got done with Grandpa, you went over to the grandmas and they'd hug, hug. And Grandma Meg, the one that stands out in my mind the most, Grandma Meg was, she was 4'8", 4'10", you know, not so big. And she was in black, all black, totally. Skinny little thing. She was probably 70 pounds, I suppose, soaking wet. And she was in a perpetual mourning. That's what they did in our family. When you'd lose a spouse, this was 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, she was still in, in mourning but she was a happy spirit and she couldn't speak English at all she only knew a few words one of those words was hug hug 
hug. So you'd walk in and after you hugged Grandpa and Grandma and Grandma, there was Grandma Mig. Grandma Mig had a mole right there. And out of that mole was growing one solid piece of hair about the size of a sewing needle. And every one of us kids knew you had to, it was like playing football. When she reached out to hug, you had to dodge and make sure you got the correct side of her face so you didn't lose an eye, you know. But I know none of you have any idea what that's about, but Grandma Meg, I love you. There, there was a lot of, um, <clears throat> you guys okay? <clears throat> it will get more serious as we go. There was so many cousins and uncles and aunts. You know, you start in the immediate family, my mom's sisters and brothers, and you move out just one layer and two layers. So these events, these dinners were huge. You know, it was not unusual to have 30 or 40 people, all family. I was the firstborn, so I had some special privileges. Grandma would say to me, this is my grandma, my mom's mom, this grandma. And she'd say, Tommy, take the group out, play. And I'd gather all the kids, you know, sometimes it'd be 15 or 20 of us. And we'd go out and share that an acre that we could run around and play on in a garden that we weren't allowed to go in. (laughs) And um, it had figs on it, special figs from Italy, you know. But we had a good time. The other side of the family, my dad's side, um, was was a little different. The the two sides of the family didn't intermix very much. There was a kind of a spiritual, quiet feud that went on between the two sides because... The, my mom's side of the family was all Catholic and the, my dad's side of the family was Protestant yeah oh boy that's exactly right that's exactly right and religion honest religion was never discussed the only conversations I remember hearing at the family dinners on Sunday particularly at Christmas time was when if somebody in the family was planning an event on a Sunday the conversation was what mass are you going to on Sunday because you had to choose between 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and noon. So you had five choices to make. Chris is bobbing his head. He remembers that. And, and so they, just to make sure that the event, whatever it was, could start as early as possible, encouraging people to go early mass so they could get to the party. That's about the only discussion that I ever had about religion at the table. It was kind of sad. And when my dad married my mom, he married into the family. He didn't marry my mom and take her out and start his own family. He married into the into the family. And in order to do that, good little Catholic girl, bad Protestant guy, he had to take all the classes to become Catholic so that he could marry my mom. My grandpa Burkett on my dad's side died when I was three and a half years old. Um, Southern Comfort got him in his early in his life. And uh, it was a drinking habit that my dad had learned from my granddad and, and that played a huge part in my life as I'll share with you in just a little bit here but, but back to the, the best place for dinner there was the assumption was always we were going to eat dinner with grandma grandpa, grandma, grandma and grandma and that's what we did and you have to understand this was a lot of people and a lot of food and there would be piles of antipasta several of them on the tables and the, the long table for the adults and the shorter table for the kids with their smaller chairs and 
and uh, there would be ham, there would be fresh minestrone soup would be made, um, a turkey or two would be made for that many people, and always this big pile of either raviolis or uh, some sort of Italian pasta with Italian sausage and meatballs. And there was a lot of food. And you'd eat the meal, and everybody would just, every, everything was just great, and you'd stuffed. And, you know, all those courses of meals took an hour and a half to eat. You were so stuffed you couldn't move. And the, the, me and a bunch of the other kids, we would go upstairs. We were allowed to go upstairs to the TV where Grandpa Pete was in his lounge chair ready to watch some football games on, on uh, Christmas Day. And all I remember about he never watched a game in his life, as far as I know, because he'd sit down in that chair, his feet would go up, gone. And you couldn't do anything to wake him up until the game was over. But uh, we would watch the game. Well, downstairs, uh, the, the ladies were cleaning everything up and getting ready for round two, honestly, getting ready for round two, cleaning all the silverware and things off. And the men were sitting around the table playing hearts. And an hour or so would go by, maybe two hours would go by, and somebody's a little hungry. And get some more of that ravioli, sure. And next thing you know, the table was full of all the food again. And there we were, sitting down just leisurely this time, just eating food. It was a edithon. I mean, it was amazing. And it is so different than my dad's side of the story, the family thing, let me tell you. But anyway, it was, um, it was quite the, the spread. If we were lucky, we would stop by Grandma Burkett's house on the way home. We'd leave, and we'd be tired, and my mom would be tired, and my dad would say, I want to stop by mom's house, his mom, and spend some time with her at Christmas. And my mom would, okay, you know, I'm tired, but... And we would go, and we'd stop by, and, and I was warned repeatedly to never listen to anything that my grandmother said about God. I'm serious, guys. Never listen to anything your grandmother says about God. And that was difficult because Grandma Burkett, when you walked in the door, she loved God. And she was ready to talk about it all the time. And uh, she would give my sister and I some hard rock candy that she would make for Christmas. Her little house would be, she'd have this little tiny tree um, that my Uncle Kenny would cut off the top of a pine tree with some property that he had and set it up for her. And she had some handmade ornaments she would put on it in a little manger scene underneath. And uh, it was just so different. It was no chaos. It was no drama. Just a reminder every once in a while to remember this is Jesus' birthday. Wish him a happy birthday. And I liked being there, even if it was just for a few minutes, because it was so different than what I had spent the whole day doing. One Christmas while visiting Grandma Burkett, we were tired. We went. And uh, I noticed that the, the wise men were not under the tree at the manger scene. They were on a lampstand across the room. And I, I could see that there was plenty of room under the tree for the wise men to be there. So I asked her the question, why are the wise men not under the tree and she said she says well the wise men were not in the stable on the night that Jesus was born she says they were traveling to find the baby Jesus and it was a, took them maybe a couple of years to find where he was living and visit him at the house what my head went like what 
flags were starting to flip around everywhere. I'm beginning to understand why they don't want to listen to Grandma on what she's saying. And uh, I was just so fearful. And I trying to be gentle to my grandmother and helpful. I, I says, who told you that? And she said, well, it's in the Bible. Here, let me show you. And she reached over and got her well-worn Bible out, pulled it out and opened it up. My mom stood up and she said, only priests can interpret the Bible. And my dad, trying to keep peace in the family, says, all right, let's go. Herded us into the car. And away we went. We never spoke of that again. Never, never talked about it again. But it was too late. A seed was planted. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it made me think about, you know, I was of that ripe old age where it's kind of cool to believe in Santa Claus, but not really that cool. I, I'm starting to have problems with how he can get all the, pa- all the questions that come up as kids transition out of that. And I thought to myself, you know, if my parents lied to me about Santa Claus what else are they lying to me about it wasn't a good day it wasn't a good feeling but as a kid it passed I moved on didn't take long hey, I gotta tell you my mom and dad worked very hard to, to give us a nice Christmas I mean the tree would go up right after Thanksgiving set up on this platform my dad built into the corner it was about a foot high he had wired lights underneath it in various places where he could set little houses on there and plug it in and all the houses lit up. My American Flyer train was set up on to go around and around the tree, which was uh, great in the, this uh, platform that my dad had built. I had no idea. He kept it a secret for me for maybe until I was 15, 16 years old. I don't know, until the light went on. But um, he put plywood panels on the front to cover it. And that on that, there was these little red brick kind of cardboard things that were stapled to it. Then he screwed it in to the... And I just thought it was a nice platform to be. Well, that's where they hid all the gifts. And I didn't realize that. They, all the gifts were hidden right there in front of us. And we, we failed to, to know that. But, so I learned. I learned a little bit about that. There was always the trip to the local department store to see Santa Claus. You know, and again, a lot of times I was like on the fence of... Santa Claus, Really? But, you know, it's just too dangerous to not believe in Santa Claus at Christmas time. I mean, really, you, you, you could risk the whole acquisition of a whole lot of gifts, you know, if, if you just didn't buy in. We also were smart enough to know that he didn't bring all the gifts, that our parents brought some, because they gave us the Sears catalog, and we were allowed to, yeah, we were allowed to look at the Sears catalog and pick two things. So my sister and I, you know, we're smart. We said, well... We're going to list five or six or seven or eight things. We'll number them in order of priority because we don't know how much money they're going to spend and how far down the list it's going to go before we get to something that's affordable for them. So we did that, and that was kind of fun. And I had this amazing thing happen. My sister and I increasingly got more and more nice to each other as the 25th of December moved on. Again, it's just too risky to not be nice to your sister during that time of the year. We were fortunate we had a, a television set in 1955. We watched It's a Wonderful Life and with Jimmy Stewart, and I never really understood it then, but I came to know from a theological perspective that finally I figured it out 
that angels got their wings when you heard a bell ring. That's, so that's what I got out of that whole thing. But the other one that was always interesting to me, and I look back at that and I say, I can see why I was curious about that, but the 1951 version of A Christmas Carol with a guy by the name of Alistair Sim, I mean, the, one of the original, um, true to the book, and that to me was an amazing thing because I, I, I love the idea of the ghost of Christmas past and present and future, but the transformation that could take place in a person's life so quickly when the error of his ways are pointed out and a hope is given to him. I had no idea at the time I was thinking through that, but that made an impact on me because later on in life I figured that out when the Lord changed my life. It was like yesterday I was a different person, today I'm different. And there were many, many traditions around the tree and the ornaments and the popcorn and the playing with the train under the tree. Tinsel's an electric train, by the way. When that tinsel hits the track, it sparks. Just, just saying. Could be a lot of fun as well. But there were two traditions that shaped, really, the rest of my life. The first one would occur every Christmas Eve, right after we were sent to bed. Just minutes after my head hit the pillow, staring at the ceiling, knowing I'm not going to be able to sleep, I hear this boom, 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 boom on the roof. And then I hear my dad in a loud, noticeably inebriated voice, Get off my roof! And I'd jump up, throw my robe on, slippers on, out the back door I'd go, and he'd be standing there with a shotgun in his hand saying, Don't worry, I missed him. <laughs> and again, my heart would stop. I'm not sure if I should believe him. I mean, he just saw him on the roof and, and all that sort of stuff. And... I came to understand that when you're about 10 years old, a basketball rolling down the roof in your house sounds just like reindeer running across the roof. And the next day, I was allowed to dig into the holes in the lawn from the 12-gauge shotgun shells, and I could keep all the lead pellets I could find. I had a little bag of them eventually, you know, but wasn't it a great thing to give your kid for Christmas a bunch of lead pellets? And despite my fears that my dad's aim would get better, Santa always came, and he'd leave us presents. You know, dolls and easy-bake ovens for my little sister, and BB guns and army men and tanks, forts for me. I tend to think that's why I still play with shotguns today, <laughs> because of that. The, uh, the second and most impactful tradition happened early on that same Christmas Eve each year. A little background of this tradition what I didn't mention earlier when I was talking about grandmas and grandpas, my, my dad's dad, my grandpa, Grandpa Burkett, um, he died on December 24th, 1953. He was in his late 50s. My sister was born December 26th, 1953, two days later. And it was difficult for my dad to have the joy and the sorrow at the same moment. And uh, every Christmas Eve, I can remember, my dad bought a new bottle of Southern Comfort. And he would sit out and visit all the neighborhood guys and our family and friends and co-workers and all the people around there, a lot of houses that it would, would go. And he would, uh, 
drink a toast and thank them for being his neighbor and good friends and he would drink a toast to his dad and you can imagine if you've got 10 or 12 houses to go through um, could be a long night and he would kind of grab me by the ear and put me in tow and I would go to each one of these places with him and I'd watch my dad get increasingly more and more drunk to the point that I was there to help him get home and I I went through that until I was just about 18 years old and I left for the Air Force in 1968 and I never returned home to live again. My dad uh, was an emotional and sad kind of guy when he drank. Sometimes he could barely walk. What I always found interesting was he was always sorry that he did it. But he never changed. That told me something. More to being just sorry. So I grew to dread Christmas Eve. I hated to see my dad that way, and it took me a lot of years and some encouragement for me to finally tell my wife why Christmas wasn't such a joyful time for me. But the love of God has helped me move through from those kinds of times, and it's, it's really been for the best. I still can't decorate. It's hard. Well, and it's, it's not from an emotional perspective, but I'm just no good at it. I mean, I live with somebody that's got a bar that I can't reach. I mean, I can fix or build just about anything, but I don't know where to put the candles, where to hang the wreath, what ornaments go where on the tree. The files that can take care of that sort of stuff are missing from my brain, and I admit that openly. I'll tell you, I'm a little better now than I used to be, but to quote the great famous songwriter and singer Jerry Reed, I've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So that's um, just kind of some of the memories, down, the, the, some of the things I remembered from my childhood. And I, if you'll notice, there's one thing really missing. There's any presence of God and Jesus and the, the whole idea of the nativity. And it's always not there. It was not there. That was not the focus of those Christmas holidays. I haven't thought about those childhood Christmas memories for a long time and I think it's good to look back and see where you were from so you can see where you're going and it is clear you can see God working in your life when you look back and as I think about those things where I could have been if life would have been different for me if someone hadn't shared the love of God in a different way with me it would be like that looking for a place to hide the the gifts that Santa Claus was supposed to bring. But I'm a better shot than my dad, so Christmas would have been over pretty quick. Well, that's the first part of this story, the walk down memory lane. The second story that I, I, I see is a shift in priorities. Priorities to the baby Jesus and a focus on God, not self. Amen. And I realized that if we're not careful about the two Christmas stories, you know, the fun and the festivities and the traditions and the birth of Jesus, if we're not careful about those two stories, uh, we could be missing the mark. And that's a gentle way of saying we're sinning. We're sinning. Yeah. This is... I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I'm not, I'm not going to get weird here or anything on you. But as I'm preparing this, 
this whole thing. I had a, a weird verse came to mind that I had not connected to this at all. In fact, it changed the direction of where I was going with it. I was reminded by, this, by the Holy Spirit of this verse. It certainly wasn't what I intended. It's Matthew 10.33. I didn't how to know how to make the connection. But the, but the verse is this. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And I was thinking, I'm trying to connect this, and then it hit me. It's really the truth. I always looked at this passage as an event. It was, you up against the wall. Here's a gun. Now, do you deny Jesus or do you affirm him? And I'm faced, do I deny Jesus before men? He'll deny me before God. Will I have enough strength if I'm ever in that situation to say what's truthful and what's in my heart, or will I be too scared or try to figure out a way around it and, and not know what to do? And then I just would say, Lord, I hope I'm never in that position to have to worry about that. And that is so, so short-sighted on what this verse says. So small. I was limiting something that is far-reaching wipe of our lives. To deny, as this verse says, is to contradict, reject, block out, disallow, disagree, or negate something. And this started coming into clarity for me real quick about us and Christmas, Christmas traditions and Santa Claus and that better understanding made me think about how it plays out in my personal story. Does my or our Christmas, does our Christmas story deny or contradict, reject, block out, disallow, disagree, or negate something? Well, if we're not careful, it sure might. Sometimes it's real clear. My dad denied Jesus before men when he openly embraced Catholicism. Pretty clear. Later on in life, I asked him about it. And he told me, he says, I just did it so I could marry your mom. That didn't make it better, that made it worse. Because not only would he deny God, but now he would lie to people about what his motive was. My uncle Ken thinks that my dad's in heaven, a you know, 11th hour confession and so on. And I hope so, because I want to talk to him about this. <laughs> but sometimes it's not so clear. Is it possible that we as a culture have denied Jesus before men by putting a magical, all-knowing, all-seeing, large man in a red suit in focus and in front of our kids? Especially on the same day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. I just only hope that when we wake up on Christmas morning, our first thought is in remembrance of the birth of our Savior. That's the primary focus. And I hope that for our children as well. And I, I'm not going to suggest that we do away with Christmas or Santa Claus or gift-giving or family dinners. All those things are important this time of the year. It's a joyful and a peaceful time of the year. 
but I'm throwing the penalty flag out. I am. And I think, you know, for you football fans, you know that it needs further review to see what the truth is. You know, I, I copied this little section of, of uh, information out as I was doing some research on the origins of Santa Claus and what it was really all about. And it's quite fascinating. There's a lot to it. But this kind of capsulizes the whole thing. It's not St. Nicholas's fault. The true story of Santa Claus begins with Nicholas, who was born during the 3rd century in a village of Petara in Asia Minor. At the time, the area was Greek and is now on the southern coast of Turkey. His wealthy parents, who raised him to be a devout Christian, died in an epidemic while Nicholas was still young. Obeying Jesus' words to sell what you own and give the money to the poor, Nicholas used his whole inheritance to assist the needy, the sick, and the suffering. He dedicated his life to serving God and was made Bishop of Myra while still a young man. Bishop Nicholas became known throughout the land for his generosity to those in need, his love for children, and his concern for sailors. St. Nicholas Day originally started out depending on which part of the country you were in, December 6th or December 19th. Somewhere along the line, it was moved to December 25th, right alongside the traditional day for celebrating the birth of Jesus. Now, we know that December 25th is probably not the actual date of the birth of Jesus. It's a day that's set aside to remember the birth of Jesus, and it's consistent. So it's okay to look at St. Nicholas and look at the things that he did in life and use that as an example for ourselves. You know, there's a, there's a story that goes on in there about some of the traditions that have gotten so out of shape. Is One particular family had three daughters, and they were trying to go through school, and they were struggling. And when Nicholas heard about that, he, the one Christmas he came by, and he slid open a window when they were all sleeping, and he threw in a bag of gold and, and left. And they woke up in the morning and found a bag of gold on their, on their floor. And the second year... That, that happened. Same thing, he went by, opened up a window and threw this bag of gold in there. The third year that he came by, the window was locked. So he climbed up on the roof and he dropped it down the chimney. Okay? And there, the family had hung clothes alongside of the fireplace that were drying and there was socks were hung up. And when he threw that, the bag of gold just happened to go in a sock. So you can see how all these things have grown into... Um, all these, these traditions and they've lost the priority of what these things really are. So my observation is that um, we can look at Nicholas as an example of how each one of us can make a positive gesture in someone's life without the risk of denying Jesus. It would actually affirm your faith in Jesus. And we can do this without ascribing the powers of a deity to somebody else. So my observation is the culture has moved Santa Claus to the front of the celebration. And like many things that we do as a culture, things can get out of control. We see that every single day in what's happening in the world even today. And I mean, does Santa really know if you were sleeping or awake? Does Santa know if you're bad or good? If he does, how come he has to check the list twice? It just doesn't make sense. 
it's true. I have many compelling memories about Christmas and how we celebrated it. And I know you do too. A lot of good memories and good celebrations that we've had. Some are regrettable and some are precious. Even the regrettable ones, we can learn by them and they can be precious to us. So what do we do? Well, I say we keep your family traditions with all the memories that go along with it alive and well. I would also say filter them through Matthew 10.33. Does any of that deny Jesus before men? You love one another. You enjoy a holiday meal together. Maybe alternate. (laughs) Not always at Grandma Jingoli's. Give gifts to one another. Seek peace and forgiveness with one another. And above all, acknowledge Jesus before men. Number one. If you're saved by faith in Jesus, then you know why this is a big deal. His birth marks the beginning of the actual plan, the physical plan for salvation for us. My guess is that many of you know the story. You haven't learned anything new. Just heard it from a a little bit different perspective. We just need to be careful what we celebrate. If you've never trusted in Jesus, this all might sound a little bit hard. We'll just just listen for just a moment here. That, you know, about 6,000 years ago, Adam and Eve lived in the presence of God in the garden that he made for them. And he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. He commanded them to take care of the garden. And he said, anything that you see out here is good for food and you can take it, except for this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. The day that you do, dying, you will surely die. And he was telling them very clearly that death would come upon them, their bodies would deteriorate and stop functioning, and their spirit would have a separation between God's spirit and their spirit. And they knew that. Well, they sinned. During the review of the consequences of that action, when God was sentencing them, basically, he made a promise, a promise of a Savior to come in the future. The Old Testament's full of prophecies about the Messiah who will come and save his people. And it was pretty clear to them and to us that there's nothing we can do to pay for the sin that we've committed. There's just there's no number on it, and we don't have enough money. Well, this little baby Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas time was born to die for us. You know, we'll hear about more about that the next couple of weeks, but he was born to die for us. He gave up his life as a payment for our sins because we could not pay the price. It's amazing his great love for us, his creatures. We simply repent, we receive his forgiveness, and we recognize he is Lord in our life, and we spend an eternity with him. Amen. And we can see pretty clearly that um, we can understand this in full. We have an advantage over the many, many, many years prior to this. We have God's word, and it's very clear about salvation. 
you can argue what you want about what revelation looks like and what a dragon looks like and all that sort of stuff, but you cannot get around the fact that Jesus died for your sins. And if you accept that, you'll be saved. It's clear. It's clear. We celebrate that, the beginning of that salvation, really at Christmas time. You know, there's another holiday that has its own problems, Easter, which celebrates the actual fulfillment of this life on earth. Somehow, this fertility Easter bunny is taking first stage in this. It's happening, guys. The deception is happening. It's been happening a long time. All who know this should rejoice. All who know this should share it. And all who know this should proclaim it before mankind. There's a, a verse in Luke. The, the story is the shepherds are in the field and an angel appears and pronounces the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Those shepherds are scared to death. And then if that doesn't top it off to see somebody appear with bright light. And by the way, it's not a little chubby little baby in blue clothes um, that bald hair and, and tiny little wings on the back. These are, angels are the host of God. They're the army of God. They have duties. These are powerful creatures, spirit creatures that God gives appearance of bodies to at his will. A lot of times we see them as people, but there are some descriptions of angels that are terrifying. Chariots of fire, that kinds of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, that's the, and all of a sudden the sky lights up and there's this host of angels pronouncing the birth of Christ and the joy there. And these shepherds are told things that they had no idea about. And then they're told, go into Bethlehem and check it out. And they do. The angels disappear and they jump up and they head for Bethlehem and they get there and they find, just like the angel said, a little baby in the feeding trough swaddled up with cloth and his Mary and Joseph are there and they say all these things that they just heard on the, on the side of the hill there from the angels and, and this is one of my favorite verses, Luke 2, 19 says, but Mary, she treasured all these things up, pondering them in her heart. Ponder means to deeply review, deeply be concerned. Have you ever pondered the birth of Jesus? Particularly at Christmas time? The child of the Holy Spirit. This little human being containing the creator of the universe. Born of such humble estate, yet he owns it all. Think about the first time baby Jesus grabbed the finger of his mother and squeezed it. I know you've probably had this experience with a little baby. You grab your finger, and you, what do you always say? Wow, strong grip. Picture that little baby grabbing Mary's finger. What control of the power that he has. <laughs> Have you ever pondered his young life? The, we know so little bit about his childhood. When he was 12 years old, we're told that he was confounding the wisdom of the teachers of the day. He had a perfect understanding of mankind and the message that they needed to hear. 
as a little baby entered into manhood, he taught, he healed, and he loved us. His life was all about obeying the Father. He gave us a free gift. Talk about a great Christmas gift. He gave us a free gift of abundant joy and eternal life in his presence. We can have a clear conscience with his forgiveness. I can't help but ponder about his life and imagine his thoughts about Adam and Eve. I don't know if Adam and Eve could see what was going on in the sense that we do. But he had, Adam had to say, look, it's happening. It's starting. It's starting what he promised us for so many years. It would soon be finished. I think about the pain he had seeing so much disbelief and so much failure to honor God. You see how that fits in with this time of the year? How easy it is to take away the honor of the Lord. There's so much worship of false gods and empty promises. So much physical and mental pain that he knew was coming by his own plan. Do you ever ponder the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? There's a perfect union from all eternity about to be changed because of our sin. I don't know if we'll ever understand the depth of that, but we need to think about that. Have you ever pondered the joy of the Godhead when one sinner repents? Have you pondered what Christmas is really about? Have you thought deeply about what it's really about? It's not ho, ho, ho. It's holy, holy, holy. You know, one story is loaded with fun and pleasures and celebrations and many good and precious memories. And one story is loaded with love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and faith and gentleness and self-control and sacrifice. Both stories can be enjoyed this time of the year, but it's critical that you weigh them on a heavenly scale and make sure that Santa and all his reindeers don't tip the scale the wrong way. Consider both stories. Only one knows when you are sleeping. Only one knows when you're awake. Only one knows if you're good or bad. Hard not to finish that, isn't it? And only one knows your measure of faith. Only one holds the power of death. Choose wisely, grasshopper. In what you do this year and where your focus is at, where your allegiance is, where your shame might be. Oh, Lord, may we never be ashamed to share the gospel. This time of year, people are curious. You're going to talk about Santa Claus and sitting on his lap? Or are you going to talk about the little baby who saved us?
Let's pray. Lord, uh, you've, uh, I know you've spoken to my heart this holiday season and helped me to understand how to blend the festivities of this holiday season with the real true purpose for this sense of peace and loyalty to one another. And let us take advantage of that. We know that the enemy takes advantage of us so often, but let us take advantage of that and make sure we share about Jesus and about what he's done for us. Make this a special time for us. Thank you, Lord, so much for all you do for us and your word. To you be the glory. Amen.